Welcome to the Scribner Australia podcast, Books That Talk. Hi, I'm Tegan Bennett Daylight and welcome to Books That Talk, my podcast, in which I interview some of Australia's best authors on the books that have meant the most to them. Now, my first ever guest is my dear friend and colleague, Charlotte Wood. She's the author of an astonishing nine books, including the multi-award winning novel, The Natural Way of Things, a searingly perfect The Weekend, and her collection of interviews with writers, The Writer's Room. Charlotte and I have been in deep conversation about books and writing for nearly 20 years, and it's a pleasure to welcome her to Books That Talk. Charlotte, hello. Hello, Tegan. When I raised the question of the book that continues its conversation with you, you were very quick to name yours. Before we do that, though, let's talk about the idea of being in conversation with a book. What does this mean to you, first as a reader and then as a writer? Well, I think it means a book that you kind of have to reread to get everything out of it. And even, actually, not everything. You know, that there will always be something there for you. Something, something new because you are different yeah. at the time you're reading it. Or your preoccupations are different. Or, you know, um, you're just in a... I mean, I'm often really kind of anxious as a writer about... How, t- how important timing is as a reader. You know what I mean? Where you've, there's a book sometimes that I'll start reading and I think, I don't get, I don't get the fuss about this. You know, mm. it'll be something mm. that you know is a good book. Yeah. Um, but it just doesn't I don't Do the get thing. it. I yeah. don't understand why people love it. And then I'll, but at those times I kind of know it's me, not the book. And I'll put it down and then I might pick it up a year later or five years later or and go, oh my God, this is incredible. You know, there's sort of, mm. and so much depends on on you, <laughs> which is alarming when when you're a writer to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, a, but, song, a songwriter friend once described to me the beginning of a lifelong relationship as the beginning of the endless conversation. And that relationship with the book, mm-hmm. the book, mm. it uh, is a conversation that goes on your whole life, isn't it? Yeah. So, talk to me about the idea of uh, the book to the writer, the book that you're in conversation with to the writer. Why is that, what is that like as a writer in conversation with other books? Well, it's the, when I read books that, that you can have this conversation with, it's, there's this tension between being really glued to the page and wanting to read on, but also wanting to rush away and write yourself. They do that thing where they sort of set up this sort of fizzling of possibility inside you. And, you know, it's kind of like a blood transfusion or something. You know, sometimes you're reading mm. something and you feel like it it's not bloodless, but you're bloodless as a writer while you're reading this book. And often they're really good books, but they don't... They don't give rise to new words in you, whereas um, books like the one that we're going to talk about um, just endlessly make me want a notebook beside me to not to write down anything about the book, but to start start my own own writing. So you have that amazing feeling of almost hovering between your own work and the writer's work. You kind of want to set theirs down so you can begin yours. It's like they, they suddenly let you see the world properly that sometimes your eyes are, you know, it's sort of opaque or something and suddenly there's a clarity of vision that makes you go, oh yes, 
And also, suddenly it makes you realise that you've got inside you all the material you will ever need to write a book. Whereas at other times I feel like, oh, I've got nothing to write about, you know. But when you read those particular writers, they make you see that there's endless possibility for your own writing that's already inside you. Isn't that interesting? Because I often find that um, young people in particular will say to me, oh, my story's not interesting enough. Not enough has happened for me. Mm. But what you grow to understand when you're an experienced writer that all you need to have done is to read enough and you have literature living in you. Yeah. yeah. And to look enough. Yeah. You know, to notice enough. Yeah. So look, without further ado, let's get to it. What is the book that you're still in conversation with? Well, the one of the books, but a very, very favourite of mine, is The Good Parents by Joan London who is an Australian writer. She's probably my favourite Australian writer. She um, lives in Western Australia. Um, she's written not a huge number of books, but they are all just glorious in my view. Um, and her last book was The Golden Age, which was very highly regarded. She wrote Gilgamesh, another one, The Good Parents. And then short stories called The New Dark Age. There might be one or two others, but <clears throat> The Good Parents is my particular favourite. So tell us first a little bit about Joan herself and her style. We know she's from Western Australia. Joan would be, I think, in her late 60s now. As you've said, she's not a hugely prolific author, but when she produces something... It almost always, in fact, always has the quietness of a classic, mm. doesn't it? You sort of, there's a gentle authority in her writing. There is both modesty and, or sort of humility, I suppose, and authority. Mm. And that's really, you know, I just aspire to that. That's what I want to be able to do. I feel like I'm going to try my whole life to be able to get that level of, um, sort of egoless engagement mm. with the people in her books um, and this very high literary ambition. Um, and it's almost like that sort of purity of, of prose that doesn't draw attention to itself, it doesn't do any tricks. Um, her stories are really... Um, you know, there's not grand plots or... They're really about the interior lives of people and I think particularly, possibly, The Good Parents is about the inner lives of several people. Shall I tell you about the story? Yeah, tell tell us about its peculiar magic, the, the one that it's worked on you. Well, I'll tell you the sort of story level, which is kind of the most boring way to talk about books, I think, but but it also has a clue to why I love it so much. So it's about family. It's about Maya de Jong, who's an 18-year-old country girl from Western Australia who's come to live in Melbourne. And she's started a relationship with her boss, who, you know, the reader sees sort of immediately is just a creepy old dude. But Maya is 18. She's sort of and this speaks to me so much because I grew up in the country and moving to the city was this sort of alarming, thrilling, lonely, frightening, but, but um, this kind of amazing 
stage of life of reinventing yourself as a city girl, you know, mm. and it's so poignant and heartbreaking. Um, but the story also opens when Maya's parents, two sort of ex-hippies um, from WA, Tony and Jacob, they arrive to visit her in Melbourne to find that she's gone away. Her housemate, Cecile, uh, says you know, she left a message on the phone saying she's gone away for work um, and she doesn't know when she'll be back. So there, Tony and Jacob are sort of adrift in Melbourne. They know she's not been kidnapped, really. she's gone away of her own free will. But they're sort of lost in Melbourne for these, you know, it takes place over a few days, I think. Um, so the story is, you know, is Maya going to come back? What's happened to her? But the, it's sort of told from her point of view while she's away with Maynard, the icky boss. And from Tony and Jacob's point of view as well, they're in Melbourne wondering if they should call the police, but, you know, they don't want to crowd her because, you know, she's sort of re she's got this new life in Melbourne and that would just sort of shame her if her parents came tearing after her and she's at work and she's fine. But um, there's this um, excavation of what's going on for them in those days, but also, of course, excavating their whole lives, their marriage, um, their own stages of, of inventing themselves and reinventing themselves since their youth. There's this beautiful, heartbreaking part where Jacob talks about when he was um, writing a screenplay under the pseudonym Chicky Fitzgerald. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, I, don't, I can't remember if he never finished it, but it was sort of, you know, this grand plan and he eventually had to just sort of quietly put it away. Meanwhile, um, Tony is remembering her youth when she, in fact, was a, a runaway girl and took up with a kind of inappropriate man. Um, but anyway, it's all just told with such subtlety and um, compassion. There's no laughing at these people, even though these, you know, there's, there's plenty of scope for seeing these people as sort of little hicks in the city and um, but I suppose that's why I love it so much because I was a little hick in the city and it and it was a time of great um, sort of fear and loneliness but also excitement when nobody knew who you were you know to move yeah. to a city where you could yeah. walk down the street and nobody knew you that was a, just a huge change in my life You've made me realise that that's one of the things Joan writes about the best because that's in the golden age as well. She understands that a child without its parents is having a new life. Yeah. She really understands that beautifully. And I don't know if you feel the same, but one of the things I love about Joan's work is her resistance to the idea of trauma. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Yes. She... And, you know, th this, this um, relationship with the boss is... You know, it's sort of, you do worry for her a lot because you see that he, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not giving anything away by, because it's there very clearly up front that she's really been exploited by this man. But, but she, she doesn't take away from Maya's own strength as a young woman. That's right. In describing her difficulty and in Maya this relationship. And Maya doesn't feel exploited. Yeah. She feels kind of renewed in a way that she's, there are some real, some sort of suspicions at the edge of her consciousness about, oh, maybe, maybe this isn't what I thought it was. But she can't 
afford to have those. So it's not she's not traumatized, mm. but she is mm. sort of, um, yeah. And and the same with Tony when she thinks about her, you know, running off from her family to a guy who is a kind of criminal. Um, but she values that time. Yeah. Think, you know. Yeah. So it's not. Basically, what Joan does is look at the immense complexity of people. Yeah. And that's what I would just love to be able to do one day without, you know, the, the kind of um, instruction yeah. that we get. And actually, her writing reminded me, I've just got a quote here that, uh, from Yeats, and Joan's work always, I'm going to read it. Where is it? Oh. Um, Yeats apparently said, only that which does not teach, which does not cry out, which does not persuade, which does not condescend, which does not explain, is irresistible. Mm. And that is Joan London's, all of her work, I think, but yeah. in this book particularly. So let's return to the idea of the conversation. You in conversation with the good parents, you in conversation with Joan London, when you're writing... What is the good parents doing with you or doing with your practice? Well, one thing I love is that now I just open it anywhere. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not, like at first you do read for story and that's one of the things about um, rereading, for me anyway. I read, not, I don't read just for story, but the story takes you, you know. It's mm. one of the great things about narrative is that it sort of carries you along. Um, but what I love about rereading a book that I adore is that I can sort of forget about the story and just be with the people in these tiny moments. Um, and so I can just open the good parents anywhere and read, even just the, the rhythm of her prose is so beautiful. But a while ago I read about, I think it's a psychologist called Jerome Bruner who talks about stories as having two landscapes, the landscape of action and the landscape of consciousness. Now, as a writer, I feel like I sort of rely a bit too much on the landscape of action. I mean, some people would say there's very little landscape of action in my books, but it's sort of a, a lack of confidence in a way that you need things happening to, to keep the reader staying with you. But if you have this supreme confidence and egolessness at the same time, you trust the reader to stay with you in this landscape of consciousness. And that is what really interests me, always has interested me as a reader, yeah. mostly, but also increasingly as a writer. I just, I just aspire to, to live in a whole book as a writer in the landscape of consciousness, yeah. which you know, the, in the contemporary reading world, the sort of book club world, that is a kind of risky proposition mm. because, you know, I was looking at um, something about the Good Parents Online this morning and happened to see some of those ghastly Amazon reviews. There were a whole lot of people who just think it's a work of genius like I do. But then there's, you know, the, the people saying... Oh, it jumps around too much, and it's nothing happens. And nothing the, happens. Mm. And I just think, well, mm. you people are damned <laughs> for all eternity because you, you know, everything happens. Everything happens, yeah. but it's not action. 
The thing about, and, and to draw our conversation to a close, the thing I'm listening hard and hearing, I think, you say is that Joan's work is roomy enough for you to continue moving around in. It invites rereading and it invites that conversation because of its... And you and I are striving for the right word. Modesty is the wrong word. Gentleness mm. is the wrong word. I think you're right with your egolessness. It allows you to occupy its space, doesn't it? Yes, and I interviewed Joan some years ago um, and that egolessness comes from her when she was talking about how much she loves Chekhov. And she said, there's no ego in his work. He is complete observer. Mm. And I thought, well, that's you. Yeah, That is that's exactly her. what you do. Complete yeah. observer with no judgment, yeah. no um, instruction, no moral lessons, just observing the deepest interiors of people's private hearts. You know, I can't think of any more important aspiration for a writer. When you're lucky as a writer, there are a few other writers who you feel are writing directly to you, and obviously Joan is writing to you. And that has nothing to do with Joan herself and everything <laughs> to do with you, but I do know that feeling of being written to directly. Yeah, and it's sort of, you know, I, I have a kind of, weird childish jealousy if anybody else reads her <laughs> you know, I feel like she's oh my fine. god when I loved the golden age you must have hated me <laughs> no because of course of course you want other people to read her but yeah I know but it's so mean. directly she's mine she's mine she's and, yours um, god if she yeah. ever hears this she'll probably think she's going to take out a restraining order <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much Charlotte for telling us about the good parents thank you Tegan I really look forward to hearing more of your books speaking to each other yeah, podcast. I'm very much looking forward to this. I've been talking to Charlotte Wood, multi-award winning novelist, short story writer and essayist about the books, the book that talks to her. The Good Parents by Joan London, published by Penguin Australia, is available to order from all good bookshops.